Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week is our first episode of our Mockingjay read-throw. We're here. We've made it. <laughs> I was like, as opposed to there? We're no longer there. We're now here. Mm, cool. They, <laughs> they didn't know until you announced that. So, this first episode is going to be covering chapters one and two of the Mockingjay book. And if you haven't read it before, we have been giving time markers for any spoilers, so you don't have to worry about that. So, Chris, why don't you lead us into our discussion by giving us a recap of what happens in these two chapters. We open on Katniss visiting the ashes of District 12. She explains how Gale helped a small number of District 12 residents escape the bombings, who are now living in District 13. However, Katniss blames District 13 and herself for their roles in the rebellion that led to so many deaths and the capture of PETA. They find out that they want Katniss to become the Mockingjay, symbolic leader of the revolution, but she doesn't believe that doing so will help anyone. She finds Buttercup and some family items, but is overcome with fear at a white rose that President Snow left for her as a threat. She returns to District 13 and gets called to a special meeting where she sees a capital broadcast of Caesar Flickerman interviewing a healthy-looking PETA, who gives a sincere explanation of the horrors of the arena, advocates for Katniss's innocence, and calls for a ceasefire. When she thinks about the status quo a ceasefire would return to, Katniss decides to become the Mockingjay and rebel against the capital. So things start off pretty bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no surprise there. Yep. But why don't we go into our first section, which is our striking moments. Some things that maybe hit us differently in this read-through, or something that we're taking special note of. Yeah, one of the things talking about how this starts is how the first chapter very quickly brings up that Katniss is still being affected by her concussion Mm -hmm. from at the end of Catching Fire. And I think that it's smart to start with the book with a example of the physical and mental trauma that... Katniss has undergone thus far. Mm-hmm. It really kind of frames her character as one who has survived a lot, but has had so much happen to her that those things, just because it's a new book, those things are still as prevalent and they stay with her. I think reminding the audience of that makes sure that it stays with us too. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, Really nice and great to actually see those things followed through throughout the series rather than just like, oh, this bad thing happens and then suddenly it's not affecting her anymore because that's not reality. And yeah, I think it's it's really interesting how it really grounds the aftermath of everything that happened in the last book I mean obviously the last two books but particularly the last book in how it's affecting everyone but also her personally and how it's affecting her personally doesn't get lost in how it's affecting everyone else yeah exactly many other things that struck me of course come from district 13 we are introduced (laughs) to a new society which is very different from both the other districts and from the capital itself. We see a third society or or type of society here that has its own specific circumstances and culture and rules. So we'll probably be talking a lot about that as we go. But some of the first things that, that struck me from this reading was how 
after one of the Capitol rebels crumples up a piece of paper, mm-hmm. you know, the, the taboo that we're see- shown of how waste is seen in District 13. Because they are a district with so, such limited resources, the idea of wasting any of those resources is really a problem for them. I thought that was a, a really interesting thing to see, particularly because, you know, in our society, unfortunately, waste is the norm and conservation is taboo. Right. I remember when I was living in Japan, me and the other American people who were living there had to get used to a trash system which had multiple different kinds of waste. There's not only recycling and garbage, but there's compost, there's specific types of recycling, some for plastic bottles, some for aluminum, and, and having to make sure that you not only separate these things, but that you wash them, that you... Do this all orderly, and if you don't, you will have your garbage given back to you with a note saying you did this wrong. (laughs) So amazing. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) And, you know, for Americans particularly, I think that those kinds of intentional confrontations against waste are hard for us. We have a culture that makes it so that we don't have to think about our trash. It's literally shipped off to other countries Mm-hmm. And or just dumped in the ocean. Or dumped in the ocean, right? Or made a, a, a dump near a low-income community or all of these course, other kinds of ways. Yeah. But yeah, it just, it made me think a little bit about how that kind of culture around the use or misuse of resources kind of affects people. Mm-hmm. The other thing about District 13 that, that really stuck out to me was the basic honorific for everyone is soldier. I know, I'm like, oh, that sounds like a diss to me. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing, is that for them, it's a title for citizenship, which really exemplifies how this is a military society. Mm -hmm. This is a society that is literally centered around weapons, in as much as it only exists because of the nuclear weapons that they have access to. So, yeah, it, it makes sense that that militaristic culture is so central that... Once you're 12 years old, you're a soldier, and that's how people are communicated with. And it's like, oh, they get to join the ranks. Mm-hmm. Do they get to, or are they forced? I mean, for outsiders, I could I understand how it could feel like, oh, well, they're accepting us. But for everyone else, it's compulsory. Exactly. Yeah, I don't think District 13 has any conscientious objectors that they acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I wouldn't do well in District 13. <laughs> Neither of us would. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Both of us don't like a military structure in general because mm-hmm. there's ranks and you're not supposed to question people above your rank. Exactly. <laughs> no, we, don't, we don't do well with that. <laughs> <laughs> we like to question authority. <laughs> we question the authors all the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, what moments stood out to you? So... Coming off of our conversations with Catching Fire about how Katniss is being used as a pawn Mm -hmm. and was manipulated and gaslighted and all of these things, I just loved how on the first page, you know, the, the book opens with her back in District 12 and every book has opened with her in District 12. But on this first page of this book... Katniss is no longer being used as a pawn. Mm. She's giving conditions for her cooperation with their plans. 
it, it's just really nice because that's something I wanted to monitor as we go along about her agency and her being used and how she reacts to that. And it's very clear from the first page of this book that she's not taking this anymore. She knows now how people lied to her and hid things from her and used her to start a revolution that it's not that she was opposed to, but she didn't have the choice to be in that role. Mm -hmm. So now she is not just going to go along with what these adults say or ask of her. She's going to make her own decisions. So yeah, that that was pretty amazing. Yeah, and that's so great too, because I think that we both are seeing, you know, I mentioned the ideas of her trauma, and mm-hmm. you're mentioning her agency here, and one of the great things about these stories is how Katniss is not entirely a victim nor entirely an agent. Mm-hmm. She is both simultaneously. So often characters are put as one or the other. Absolutely. And yeah. she can be an agent, can stand up for herself in ways that she hasn't in the past, while also still being affected by the trauma of what's happened to her in the past. Mm -hmm. And she can still be a victim of that trauma while also being a strong character and one who doesn't always know what to do, but tries to do what's right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to say that because... That's so much more realistic to how people exist mm-hmm. in this world. Another thing I just found amusing is the refugee from District 10, Dalton, his skeptical look at District 13, mm. telling her, like, oh, I should let you know, <laughs> you're important. <laughs> <laughs> uh, telling her that, like, basically District 13 is fine with you being here because they need you all to have babies so that they can have more people to fight wars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just such a great point for this not important character to the story at all. Just this person who is looking at this society that he is now in. And it's kind of like all societies throughout time Mm -hmm. as far back as recorded history goes those in control have been pushing these things have babies we have enough people to have food and wars and uh district 13 is not immune to that either yeah absolutely with the notable exception of, like, the one-child policy in China and, and things like that, where overpopulation, which... Was an issue, yeah. Only really became an issue in very few circumstances throughout human history. Yeah. Um, and nowhere near as much as it is today. Um, yeah. But, yeah, very good points. But why don't we move into our From Another Point of View section. This is where we are looking at a character or two that would have a different take on circumstances or experiences in these two chapters. Yeah, I wanted to talk about PETA. I'm going to talk about PETA too, but you can go first. Yeah, I want to talk about... I mean, you're supposed to go first. Thanks. (laughs) PETA's conversation with Snow about Katniss. Mm. I guess you could say I'm even thinking about this from Snow's perspective, because I'm thinking about this in comparison to Snow visiting Katniss at the beginning of Catching Fire, Mm -hmm. and how he doesn't feel the need to talk to Peeta. He goes to talk to Katniss because he sees her as more of a threat, 
And now he's talking to PETA because of the circumstances that they're in. And PETA's able to exert some of his own agency in that conversation. It's, it's, we don't know exactly what happens, but it's likely that PETA was, yeah, advocating for leniency against Katniss and willing to do what the Capitol wants of him to an extent. I mean, if a conversation happened, right? We, we don't know. Yeah, I, I imagine it happened with someone, perhaps not yeah. Snow, but mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, I just, I feel like it's it's interesting to see, for one, how this person might be seeing for the first time how clever PETA is, mm-hmm. how savvy he is, how well he's able to understand these kinds of conversations, and how well he's able to understand the mechanisms of power that go along with them. Yeah. Because not only, I think, is he someone who has shown that he is willing to sacrifice for Katniss, he also is now someone who doesn't have much to lose. And that gives him a kind of sense of, I don't know if he might might be less afraid or more unafraid, more, more courageous to be more blunt. We see him on the interview, at least, being kind of blunt in a way that he hasn't been in the past. Yeah, it almost, uh, in, in a way, he's almost taking on a, a Johanna-type quality there because he is able to speak truth to power in a way because of its circumstances. Hmm. What were you thinking about for PETA's point of view? I might have a slightly different take than you. That I don't buy Gail's take on the situation, that Snow or the Capitol made some sorts of deals with him or he's just trying to secure her life or or whatnot because he's a smart kid so I imagine that he assumes that she'll be killed if Snow gets his hands on her Mm. but he also probably assumes that he'll be killed if he doesn't provide some use to Mm -hmm. the capital in this war and so I was thinking about him wanting to figure out how to position himself as an asset to the capital while not actually doing harm to the revolution. Because I think that he would think that the only way for the killings to stop, starvation to stop, the games to stop, his loved ones, including Katniss, to survive is if the rebels win. Because if the rebels don't win, we know what happened last time the district's lost. Mm-hmm. And he's seen what the capital will even do to victors. Yeah. And so I assume that he knows these things and is trying to strategize how he can still be defiant on screen without the capital realizing he's being subversive so that they can continue to use him and not kill him. But he's positioned in such a way that if there's anything ever he can say or do in a particular moment that will help the cause, he will. But if not, he's not going to do too much damage to the cause. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's it's like the career pack all over again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's a great point. Yeah, so I was thinking of him having his own subversive agenda in the interview. Like when he's told that you have to do this interview with Caesar and we want you to call for a ceasefire, Mm -hmm. that he was figuring out ways to try to subvert the lies that he has to tell. And so I was thinking about him, one, 
talking about the games mm, and the yes. horrors of this, that would function to remind the districts what the capital does to their kids every year so that they keep fighting. And it also might engage possibly sympathetic capital citizens because yeah. nobody has ever talked about this before on air like that. You know, after the games, there's these victory interviews with, with Caesar, probably about like how they were victorious. Oh, these great kills they made, you know. And then number two on his agenda would be using taboo language to show that the capital isn't dictating everything he says. Because he said murdered innocent people when he was mm -hmm. talking about the games. And we know from book one, when Katniss thought the word murder and was like, oh, I can't be using that word yeah. in relation to what's happening in the games, he must know that as well. Yet he uses that word, and I'm sure according to the capital, no person in the districts is innocent because their parents, 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 yeah. parents, or whatever, rebelled. The next point I was thinking about him wanting to hit is potentially trying to use sneaky language that he probably knows most people wouldn't get, but maybe if some do, uh, it could communicate that what he's going to be forced to say soon about the ceasefire isn't actually what's true mm. of what he thinks or wants. Because I was looking at what he said specifically about the end of the quarter quell, in two sentences, he mentioned allies with the others, I should have never let them separate us, and that's when I lost her. And so I, w I was kind of thinking, like, I wonder if this could be read in a way that's like, districts don't let the capital separate mm. you be allies with the others or you'll lose mm. uh, i don't know but i was just i could see you know he's very intentional with what he says and he's very smart so even though most people wouldn't get it maybe that was you know at least I can say something that makes me feel not as bad about these things that can maybe be you know giving subtle clues and then also he makes use of intonation when caesar says like oh well if you're getting upset we can end this interview and he's like why was there more to discuss and the word that collins used was wryly which means bitterly or disdainfully ironic or amusing and to me that's signaling clearly you are making me say this next thing yeah also he was giving some visual cues as well that he's not the one calling for a ceasefire because when he calls for the ceasefire, what he does is he takes a deep breath and looks directly into the camera. That makes it feel rehearsed. Mm -hmm. To me, that feels like there is a director of this scene because he, the rest of the conversation, he wasn't communicating that way. It feels very forced. It feels not natural or organic or like it's coming from him. And so I was thinking about, yeah, possibly him trying to give those cues. And then at the very end of his interview, he reminds the world that he's a prisoner 
It's like, oh, well, the guards will take me back to my quarters, you know, which is clearly being like, I'm a prisoner here, so of course I'm forced to say these things. And so that was kind of my take uh, this time on what could have been going through his mind because he is such a strategic person and he uses words very strategically. He always has in every interview and, I mean, not, I guess, his final interview of book one because those same things weren't on his mind at the time, but every other time he's spoken in public that we know of, he's used it very strategically. And, you know, maybe there was even a little part of him that's like, hey, maybe this could help Katniss, like, mm-hmm. irk her so much that <laughs> it all, because I'm sure he knew that she wasn't on screen yet, the Mockingjay. Yeah. Uh, that's some, some information I'm sure he was privy to because... We'll see how things change later on in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about him trying to find a way in this interview to not be a piece in their games and not lose himself completely and let them turn him into something he's not. Yeah, absolutely. I I definitely agree that he was not just giving his sincere beliefs in this interview because we've seen over and over how he is able to affect an audience when he wants to Mm -hmm. and he can do that when he's being sincere or not but here he's being insincere and not trying to convince them not trying to change minds the way that he has been in the past yeah before he has said things to move an audience and and now i feel like he's like he's never had to be covert in what he's saying before yeah and so i was looking for that covertness totally i also do agree with your point that gail's probably wrong that he came up with a lot of that Isn't information he always no i'm kidding not in his rage against the capital but <laughs> but the way that he's framing katniss as being innocent of the plot in the mm-hmm. second book that is true for one but mm-hmm. more importantly that also serves the capital because the capital would also want people to think that she didn't have anything to do with it they would want the districts to not see her as a symbol if they don't have to mm-hmm. and since she hasn't come out yet to say anything otherwise yeah i can totally understand them trying to put out that kind of messaging i mean i could definitely see it being in the back of Peta's mind if this could help her in any way totally. survive great but i don't think that that was his primary thing because he knows that he, there's nothing really he can do mm-hmm. yeah the only other super short pov i was thinking about was dalton's if he f- finally felt like he could relate to people when the refugees from district 12 arrived because i don't know how many people who aren't from district 13 would have gotten there and if he's the only one or one of a a couple like that's would probably be very lonely existence Mm -hmm. yeah so it's not like you want misfortune to befall all of these people but also i could see you feeling like ah finally people who aren't just district 13 culture Mm -hmm. (laughs) and people who like yeah i can relate to so much of what they've lost Mm -hmm. not not their whole district but obviously he must have lost a good deal to run away to district 10 yeah absolutely one of my wonderments was going to be 
what Dalton's story is. Oh. What, uh, you know, why he left, what his journey was like, and what his experience in, in 13 has been like. Um, I'm also curious if you tried to do with Dalton from District 10 the what, you, what you've been doing from other districts of trying to tie them into the people who mm. engage with those kinds of goods in our world. Yeah, I didn't. Um, wrongly so. Because I know he's not a main character. Like, I didn't bother, which is bad. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll look up. Well, I mean, that, that's part of the problem w- with the meat industry in the United States. It's mainly from the United States. Yeah. So that's going to look much more like the U.S. population. Mm-hmm. Not to say that certain ethnicities might have more work in in that realm than others i'm not sure but yeah. uh, and that's possible. changed over time you know the first totally. cowboys were vaqueros they were yeah. mostly mexican and indigenous eventually those those things change over time so mm-hmm. but yeah mm-hmm. that, that's interesting yeah but i will look great i gave you homework uh, yay actually i don't mind homework that much it's one of us <laughs> why don't we go into our touch points This is the section where we are looking at things that are happening in this story and where they have parallels to things that are happening in our world. Yeah, so I had a few. First, kind of touching on what we discussed earlier about citizenship and being a soldier. (laughs) And as Dalton mentions, there's a purpose to these new people coming into District 13 uh, for their society. And we see how... Sure, jobs and education and military service can often be tied to ideas of citizenship uh, in the world, and in particular tied to those who are considered useful in some way might be granted citizenship, whereas those who are not seen as useful to Mm -hmm. society for many different reasons are not granted the same access to citizenship. Yeah, what is it, like, the special scale visas that we give to only people with certain skills, which are oftentimes either in the sciences or entertainment? Totally, yeah, yeah. Uh, Or, yeah, education visas are something that we give, but this even goes back for a very long time. Yeah, The first ever national law that restricted immigration based off of race or nationality was the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. Mm -hmm. Uh, which said that Chinese people could not immigrate to the United States unless they were merchants. (laughs) Because merchants would therefore be people who own a business rather than people who would be coming as laborers. So that's that's an idea. uh, You know, Mexican migrants who have often worked as cheap labor have also been the target of immigration scares for Mm -hmm. decades. So that kind of thing is, is pretty common. And then conversely... That idea of military service granting citizenship is also a pretty old idea. There was uh, battalions in the U.S.-Mexico War that were immigrants from Europe who were promised American citizenship if they fought for the Americans. And that kind of thing was actually not uncommon in other wars as well. So, yeah, again, we have a use for you. You can go and fight and maybe die for us, but if you don't die, then... We can give you citizenship for the country. We wouldn't otherwise. (laughs) Of course not. But, you know, when you can serve a purpose, then you are are welcome. Or like Japanese people sent to concentration camps. Mm -hmm. You can get out if you serve in the military. Yeah, yeah. 
you can die here or maybe not die maybe just suffer but definitely some of you will die or you can maybe go die there and prove your loyalty mm-hmm. we're excluding you saying that you're not american but we yeah. also would love for you to go fight america's enemies we're saying you might be spies but do you want to go into combat <laughs> <Exactly>. for us <laughs> oh my god and it's also interesting to think about like countries that have compulsory military service mm-hmm. like Taiwan, like Switzerland, several places that are I think generally have a smaller population, have more potential enemies around and things like that where it's actually required. Yeah. But starting that young, what was it, 14? Yeah, 12 or 14. 12 or 14. Something like yeah, yeah, something very young is just don't love that. No, not at all. Uh, another thing that, that I was thinking about was how Katniss sends thoughts to Peta about, mm. you know, how he's suffering and wanting that to not be the case for him and, and wanting to give him strength, but knowing that she can't reach him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just made me think about how people send thoughts and prayers mm-hmm. uh, after disasters or entirely preventable occurrences like school shootings and things like that yeah Uh, they'll send their thoughts and prayers but they're not going to do anything about it we'll send our thoughts and prayers and relax laws against (laughs) owning guns yeah yeah so katniss at least understands like what i'm doing doesn't do anything yeah but uh well and it's not like it's her her choice right you know it's not like she could do an action to save Peta. she can't yeah 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 um, but yeah, I thought that was an, a, a fun contrast. <laughs> fun. <laughs> <laughs> In a more personal note, I, I saw a connection with Katniss when she didn't want to become the Mockingjay, where because she was just feeling so overwhelmed and like she won't be able to do anything to help anyone, that mm-hmm. no matter what she does, it's not going to help people. And for me, that's when I feel... Uh, my depression particularly affecting me. Mm. It's very much those same kinds of thoughts of nothing is uh, going to do any good. Um, And And it might do harm. It might do harm. Mm. And just feeling overwhelmed by all of that and feeling, you know, unable to make choices and and things like that. Uh, So reading through that this time, definitely, um, it was a a striking moment for me, but it also, you know, highlighted even more of how, Katniss's mental health has suffered so much Mm. um, and continues to affect her. Yeah. I mean, it's so much personal responsibility to ask someone to take on. Like, is it her fault what happened to all of these people? No, it's the capital's fault that is oppressing people to this point where this revolution is happening, and Mm -hmm. they have been for generations. But also, you know, it's, it's... if you are the face of something, if you are the one inspiring this, or you're told you're the one inspiring this, yeah, that just has to weigh personally in a way that it wouldn't if she was just a participant, but it had someone else's face. Yeah, yeah. And not only being a face for her and the people that she's representing, but a face for the enemies as well, where it's a target, essentially. And when they have the leverage of having Peta there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, she didn't want 
any of this. I mean, yes, she wants the capital to be stopped and doesn't want the games to exist and all of that. But again, she was trying to get out of the yeah. games and, you know, force the capital's hand to let them both out. Yeah. But she didn't sign up to be the symbol of resistance and it sucks. Yeah, <laughs> it would absolutely. just, you know, it would be so overwhelming. Totally. Well, I have one last touch point, uh, mm-hmm. and that is the idea of mutually assured destruction. Yep. So, I knew you'd talk about this, so I didn't put it in my notes. It's <laughs> probably smart. Yeah. <laughs> so District 13 has only been able to survive because they have access to nuclear weapons. So they and the Capitol both have access to nukes, which means that they're at essentially a standoff. If either of them shoots a weapon, the other will also send weapons, and so both of them would be completely destroyed. And this was something that was a vital part of the Cold War, and the U.S. and Soviet Union in particular, but other states as well, building nuclear weapons, having nuclear stockpiles, and essentially doing so as a idea of defense, when the only defense is essentially saying, we are going to have the capacity to kill millions or billions of people mm-hmm. to stop other people from killing millions or billions of people. <laughs> if you kill us, we'll kill you. Exactly. <laughs> uh, which is just an awful death pact that humans decided to have with one another. Oh, but only after testing it on Japanese people. Oh, of course, yeah. It's not going to be dropped on the Nazis. It's not going to be dropped on the Italians, you know, under Mussolini. No, let's let's leave it for the non-white people. Yeah. And show the world how destructive this is. Oh, no, wait, now they can do it too? Well, then we'll threaten them with killing them too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And like... we'll build enough stockpiles that we can destroy the world. 80 times over. Oh, yeah. Uh, of course. Yeah, because that's really necessary. Why, why would we not do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, uh, nuclear weapons are awful. Yes. And mutually assured, assured destruction is, you know, something that you probably had bolded as a keyword in your <laughs> high school history textbook. So true. But uh, probably t- should take a cr- more critical lens, too, because it's just a form of illogical thinking. Uh, yeah, it's, thinking it's that is so self-destructive. I mean, it's both nonsensical and is logical. Of like it, that, that's the sad thing because it's like with humans as terrible as we are, this is how you maintain so-called peace. Mm-hmm. It's through threat of everyone dying. <laughs> that's how you get people to not attack each other. That's how you get people to keep within their borders except when they don't yeah so yeah it, it's just say uh and of course borders that were not set up oftentimes by the people themselves oh certainly not <laughs> yeah. yeah okay so tangent we play worldle it's like wordle but it's with geography of the world mm-hmm. and any- so you'll just get a outline of the borders of the country and you don't know how big it is compared to other countries you don't know where it's located you're supposed to guess what country it is yeah and every time the borders look too rigid or strange (laughs) we're like okay imperialism happened here Mm -hmm. and go from there yeah absolutely yes fun tidbit into our (laughs) off mic life Mm -hmm. We're still exactly like this. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Never sorry. (laughs) 
Well, what touch points did you have? So I was thinking about Katniss wondering about the Victor's village and why they didn't bomb it. If capital people ever need to visit, they have somewhere decent to stay. (laughs) (laughs) So bad. In, In those examples, she also thought a squad of peacekeepers checking for returning refugees. That was just making me think about how horrifically people who have been displaced are treated. Obviously, Palestinians will never be allowed to return to their houses that they were forced out of. And if they tried, they would be met just like she's thinking refugees from District 12 would by peacekeepers, by police, by military force. And also it makes me think about there have been reports over many, many years of Turkish border guards shooting or beating Syrian asylum seekers for trying to get into Turkey. And obviously, we're no better. The United States were actually worse Mm -hmm. because Turkey has at least allowed 3.7 million Syrian refugees into their country. And I think we've opened our doors to, I don't know, 20,000-ish And thinking about the space that the United States takes up versus Turkey, it's just terrible. And then that also made me think about how in The Good Place, Jason Mendoza was like, (laughs) we're we're refugees. What kind of terrible place would turn away refugees? (laughs) And I'm like, exactly. I know, we love Jason (laughs) Mendoza. Because that's that's exactly it, right? Yeah. Yeah, the idea that they would not be allowed back, they would be executed, probably. Yeah, it's just something that would happen here Mm. and does happen here. Yeah. I was also thinking about that idea kind of juxtaposed with District 13 and them, like, welcoming the people and kind of the language when Katniss is thinking about the sick, wounded, starving, empty-handed. I don't know, just uh, those words kind of just made my mind connect to the Statue of Liberty quote. Yeah, uh, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, you need to breathe free, it mentions homeless, you know, and it's very much in the same way. <laughs> like, we're very much like District 13 in that way. It's like, oh, it's a nice idea and we'll act like it's true. But in reality, we'll only let people in that we feel we can benefit from. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't feel like we can benefit from you, you will not be allowed in. Yeah. Or if you're even if you're already here, we'll just send you away. Even if we send you back to places where you will be killed you know we, mm-hmm. we just don't care so yeah. uh yeah i i was wondering if suzanne collins is kind of poking fun at the idea of that quote i mean it's not it if it were true it would be great and beautiful <laughs> but we know better yeah but at this point <laughs> If, you know, if not forever, but certainly by this point, we know the farce that that mm-hmm. quote is. Yeah. And the last touch point I want to talk about is how when she's in her home in the Victor's village, she gathers 
basically what her hunting bag can carry Mm -hmm. and takes it back to her mom and sister and that definitely brought my mind to refugees that Mm. definitely brought my mind to stories of the Japanese and Japanese American communities that were sent to concentration camps yeah this is embedded in their experience and the, the, the stories about having to choose what to bring and you only having a few keepsakes you only having what you can carry that you can hang on to mm-hmm. and especially with prim when she gets buttercup back and she's sobbing and everything those are such heartbreaking stories i mean they're all heartbreaking stories from the japanese american community who had to experience that but when some of them talk about the pets that they had to leave behind because they weren't allowed to take them, you know? Yeah. And it's it's not just material things, although that's huge too, but it's also living companions as well. And yeah, I, I remember there, there was an event at the Japanese American National Museum a few years back with refugees and and. and kind of sharing in that experience of what are the items that you brought with you Mm. because the few items that you chose have deep meaning yeah because you could only choose a few yeah just it showing how uprooted their lives are and i think katniss is very much experiencing that here there's the wedding photo there's the the book of plants and herbs and the cat and a hair ribbon and her dad's jacket and and that's it that's all they have of home so i i love that suzanne collins put that in i mean it it just it adds a, a level of layers to this story for those who have the time to grab things and those who don't yeah yeah, and, and it also shows more of the humanity of suffering, of being dislocated and violently displaced. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Why don't we go into our wonderments? I already stole one or made you talk about one early about Dalton, but uh, what else do you have? Yeah, the other one I was thinking of was the scheduled tattoos that mm. the people get in District 13. And it just made me really start thinking about what the process is behind that. Are these schedules created by individuals or by algorithms? Mm. Um, And what are the priorities that are maintained when this is happening? Obviously, the way that that food and supplies and resources are rationed, time is also going to be rationed in very specific ways. You know, we get brief insights into what those mean through Katniss's perspective of it, though she's probably getting a different experience than the typical District 13 person mm-hmm. would, or even a refugee. But it still, I think, is able to give us some insight. And I would just love to, yeah, know more about how those priorities are made and how they then translate into a enforced schedule against these people, which really is a important example of the social control that exists in District 13, which is of a different form, but comparable with the social control that the capital 
has over the districts. Mm. So, yeah, just more insight into that, I think, is is something that, that's kind of on my mind, and, and I'll probably keep, be keeping an eye out for as we, we continue to see more examples of that. Yeah, and that's kind of leads me to a, a very interesting question is why if you think about a class schedule it's the same schedule that you always have and so is this a way to constantly maintain control and like reassert the control that you have because if what you're telling them to do is changing every day at, at specific times and whatnot then they are obeying every day versus if they just have a set schedule that becomes routine rather than reinforced that's so true you you asking that makes me wonder if there is any relation to the fact that they're underground and they don't have the sun which helps mm. to build that kind of routine mm-hmm. um but and, you think they still have clocks <laughs> yeah of, of, there, i'm sure there's still other forms of timekeeping that exist yeah. Uh, they mentioned there's lights out, so it sounds like mm-hmm. the lights do go out at a certain time. But yeah, is it tied to this kind of unnatural progression of days when you're so far away from how a day looks like it does to us um, when you're underground? So that, yeah, that's a great question. I also love the fact that the only time she pays attention to it is when it's mealtime. I get you, Katniss. Yeah. <laughs> Were you wondering about anything else? Yeah, I was also wondering about the process of District 13 striking a deal with the Capitol in the original Mm. war, and what that looked like. Did anybody float the idea, should we just send our missiles, and sure, they'll destroy us, but they won't be in control anymore, Mm. so the rest of the country might do better? Was there any sort of vote that was taken? Was it completely hierarchical? So just a couple people decided, you know, I just, I want to know what that process was like. And if any of the people from District 13 feel guilty about leaving the rest of the districts who depended on 13 to have weapons and to be a part of this fight to just be subdued and constantly tortured yeah for the next 75 years yeah and i think it's interesting how we are introduced to district 13 and catching fire through katniss's anger mm-hmm. of well if they do exist what the hell have they been doing <laughs> right they've just been letting us go on like this i think that's a great thing to keep in mind as we now are in district 13 yeah, what is their history? Yet? Oh, I would be so mad too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, in agreeing, they let the capital not just win, but win in such a way that would make the districts never want to revolt again. Yeah. Which is, yeah. You don't need to blame yourself, Katniss, but you can blame District 13, sort of. (laughs) You know, a a part of the blame goes to them. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily the people now, because they weren't alive at the time, but... Yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't we go into our intentions? These are things that we are taking from our discussion or the chapters that we want to apply to our own life. 
Yeah, mine mine is very personal this time. I'm thinking about my depression. Uh, mm. You know, when looking at Katniss's mental health, like I said, I, I kind of was able to relate to some of her symptoms here or the way that she thought about things sometimes. And I was also struck by when she talks about how she is finally getting weaned off medication and she doesn't want to be on that medication anymore. And mm-hmm. For me, I am, I, I've been on medication for about a year or so now, but my intention here is to kind of take that more seriously because uh, I have a, a reminder in my phone, but there will still be occasions where I, you know, forget to take it because I've only started taking pills at all, really, at that time. And forming that habit has been more difficult, but also perhaps it shows that I haven't been as serious about it as I should be. Not to mention also meeting with a doctor to see if that is the best prescription for me. And, and yeah, just seeing how it affects Katniss uh, and how medication is part of how she is processing, dealing with this uh, medication that she doesn't entirely have control over. When I do have that kind of control, I think I need to do a better job taking advantage of that. So yeah, that's my intention. Hmm. What about you? That's a good one. So my intention is thinking about, like you mentioned earlier, when Fulvia crumples the piece of paper up and Katniss is remembering that instance and thinking about how she enjoys watching the capital people be really uncomfortable (laughs) and like not know how to navigate in a world with lack of excess (laughs) and uh so just reminding myself as much as I want to be an ally as much as I'm upset by these different things still my access to medical care or food or different things I have so much more access than other people do and it's not to say ah don't care about these things like it's it's great and it's important that these other capital citizens did what they did and are doing what they're doing but just because they care doesn't mean they're the same as all of these people that they're fighting with and it also doesn't mean that like they aren't still the most privileged person in the room Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so just keeping those things in mind not that not that i want embarrassing moments of like oh track my privilege but also i could probably use them every so often too Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Okay, well, that's going to wrap up our discussion. So what's happening next time on The Hunger Games? So we are going to be reading one chapter, chapter three next week, because there's a lot to talk about. So just one chapter. And what happens in that chapter? Katniss makes some demands. Right on. Yeah, do it. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. We hope that you'll join us on Patreon so you can participate in all of the great book club discussions and other special features that we have there for our supporters. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out! out.